1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. He was the longest-serving consort in British history, but the public knows little about the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, beyond the biographical details. Our correspondent recalls meeting him over months at a difficult time for his family. And some of the finest coffee in the world is from Kenya. But until recently, not a lot of it has been drunk there. Now, rising local demand is good for all involved. The growers, the baristas, and of course, the coffee drinkers themselves. First up, though... Germany, indeed the whole of the European Union, is preparing for an era beyond the leadership of Chancellor Angela Merkel. And this weekend, the contours of the battle to lead her party became clearer. Mrs. Merkel's Christian Democratic Union, or CDU, along with its sister party, the CSU, have led the country for four consecutive terms. And the two party leaders, themselves the heads of Germany's two most populous states, are now vying to replace her. Armin Laschet, the CDU chair, has already announced his intention to run.
2: Markus Söder
0: and ich haben vor dem heutigen Tag ein langes Gespräch miteinander geführt.
1: Yesterday, Markus Söder, who leads the CSU, threw his hat in the ring. Germany's state led coronavirus response has come into question as cases have risen faster than vaccinations. Legislation that's under review would wrest control back from the states and shape a federal COVID-19 response. That creates a potent political mix for two candidates with differing leadership of their home states.
2: For the best part of a year, these two men, Armin Laschet and Markus Zerda, have been engaged in a sort of war of attrition conducted mainly through the media, criticising each other's approaches to coronavirus, suggesting that their respective approaches have been more appropriate.
1: Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief.
2: And this, of course, is a sort of proxy war for the decision for which of them is going to lead the two parties into the federal election in September, and therefore most likely succeed Angela Merkel as chancellor.
1: Now, we've spoken about both of them before on the show, but let's quickly go through who each of them is. Tell me more about Armin Laschet.
2: Armin Laschet was elected leader of the Christian Democratic Union, the main centre-right party in Germany, in January. He is also the leader of North Rhine-Westphalia, and that's Germany's biggest state. He's a a moderate, a a centrist, sort of in the the mould of Angela Merkel, whose leadership he has supported resolutely. The problem that Armin Laschet faces, frankly, is that he's not very popular. His polling numbers are bad, They've been getting worse since January. He doesn't seem to have found a very successful way to communicate his position, particularly on the pandemic. And polls show that he's far less attractive, both for German voters more broadly, but also for supporters of the Conservative parties. He's a far less potential attractive candidate than his rival, Markus Zerda.
1: And tell me more about him.
2: So Markus Zerder is the Premier of Bavaria in Germany's south, and he's also the leader of the Christian Social Union. Here we have to briefly explain this slightly peculiar situation that we have in Germany, where the, the CDU, the main conservative party, operates in 15 of the 16 states in Germany. In the 16th, in Bavaria, their sister party, the CSU, operates and has basically run the state more or less continuously since the establishment of the post-war republic. The leader of the CSU has an odd position where they both, they're very strong regional politician, but also have national stature because the CSU governs in the federal coalition with the CDU. And Markus Söder has used that position quite successfully to build up a national profile. He likes to present himself as a plain speaker. He's a very good communicator. He seems to have an ability to reach out beyond Bavaria. He's attracted a lot of support among conservative voters in different parts of the state. He 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 positioned himself as a hawk on COVID, generally pushing his state and other states to take a tougher line, aligning himself with Angela Merkel, who's also been relatively hawkish on these things. And one outcome of the pandemic is that Markus Erder has become one of the most popular politicians in Germany, which is one reason why a lot of people think that he has a, a good chance of taking that job.
1: But the way you describe it, in in a sense, their prospects are very intimately tied to pandemic response. I mean, how have they differed?
2: Yeah, I mean, this has basically been one of the kind of subplots of... Germany's management of COVID-19 throughout the last year. Basically, because the system has involved the leaders of the states implementing agreements that are made at these regular summits every few weeks between the state leaders and and the national leaders, the role that the state leaders have has been very, very important. And Lashett and Zerda have kind of become representative of two different approaches to the pandemic. Laschet generally urging a sort of a softer course, sceptical about locking down too hard, um, wanting to open up when incidence numbers fall. Zerda has been much more on the hawkish side. In general, that is a way in which they position themselves over the over the year of the pandemic.
1: So a lot's being said about the diverging views and plans of, of these two men. But what about the, the, the national level response?
2: Well, basically, the plan is to, this week, for Parliament to amend a law that would give the federal government the power to impose a so-called emergency break on regions when weekly numbers exceed a percent cases per 100,000 population. And this is all under debate. This could change. Um, But the draft law could impose Germany's first national curfew. This would be quite a significant move. It talks about closing schools when caseloads reach over 200 per 100,000 people, tighter restrictions on who you can meet, perhaps compulsory testing in the workplace. The problem with this, in my view, it's probably not going to be enough.
1: And meanwhile, when should we expect a decision on the, the contest between Mr. Lashett and Mr. Soda?
2: Soon, probably this week, maybe in the next day or two. Uh, yesterday, Marcus Soda finally declared his interest in the job... But this morning, the Presidium of the CDU, um, which is the party's executive leadership body, gave its clear backing to Armin Laschet to be the chancellor candidate. And that significantly narrows the path for Zerda to get the job. Um, This may move quite quickly now. And this all means that Germany's election campaign can finally kick into gear now that the personnel issues are being sorted out. Um, The Social Democrats, who are the junior coalition partner in the current government, already have their candidate for the election, Olaf Scholz, and the Greens, who are sitting in second place in opinion polls, will choose their candidate in a week's time.
1: But that's just choosing party leaders and and candidates for the election. How do you reckon the election would go? Is there a chance for a a post-CDU CSU Germany?
2: Yes, there is. And this has really spooked the party. Just before the pandemic, the CDU, CSU were in serious trouble. They were polling at about sort of 26%, 27%, a historic low. The Greens were surging. Other parties were doing quite well. Then we had the pandemic and we had a very sort of reassuring Angela Merkel taking control of things and communicating the problems quite well to the country. And the CDU, CSU soared up to sort of close to 40%. They remained at that level throughout the pandemic until about a month ago when the political management of the pandemic, the wheels really started to fall off. We had all of these squabbles between state leaders and national leaders. The CDU, CSU, they sort of lost their sheen of competence. And now it's almost as if the last year hasn't happened. They're back on sort of 26, 27% again, about to sort of four or five percentage points ahead of the Greens. And of course, when this decision for the chance of candidacy is made in the next week or two, then Germans will finally be able to counter a future without angela merkel and then i think anything could happen you know i mean I, I think the smart money is still probably the conservatives governing with the greens as a junior coalition partner but an awful lot could happen in the next five months so yes there are all sorts of possibilities for coalitions that wouldn't include the conservatives that was something that's basically been unimaginable for the last
1: year thanks very much for joining us tom
2: great pleasure thanks jason
1: for more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash offer. The link is in the show notes.
3: Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed Services. GEP.com.
1: Britain is in an official period of mourning following the death of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, on Friday. His funeral will take place on Saturday at Windsor Castle. The Queen has said her husband's death has left a huge void in her life. His son and the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, paid tribute to the man he described as his dear papa.
0: My father, I suppose the last uh, 70 years, has given the most remarkable devoted service to the Queen, to my family, and uh, to the country, and also to the whole of the Commonwealth.
1: The Duke was the Queen's consort for more than seven decades, a constant not only in her life, but also in that of the British people. He was known as a deeply private person, one who rarely spoke to the press. One of the few journalists who did interview him was Fiametta Rocco, a senior editor at The Economist.
0: 1992 had been a really horrible year for the royal family. In less than 12 months, two of their children had separated from their partners. It is announced from Buckingham Palace that, with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. This decision has been reached amicably, and they will both. One had divorced, there'd been a dreadful fire at. Windsor Castle.
2: It is a scene of chaos and destruction. This castle, dating back to the 9th century and which survived the wartime blitz.
0: Queen famously described it in a speech as her Annus Horribilis. And it was at that time that I was asked by a British Sunday newspaper to start working on a seriously long profile of him. And I spent four months following him in his day-to-day work, at the end of which he agreed to give me an interview.
1: And in the course of that reporting, what kind of man did you discover?
0: The interview took place in his study in Buckingham Palace, which overlooks Green Park. And I remember the first detail that I noticed about him was his hands. He had very big hands. He also suffered quite a lot from rheumatism, so they were very red and quite swollen. And in the interview with me, he held in his hand a letter opener, which he turned over and over and over in his fingers, you know, holding it first by the blade and then by the handle. And for me, this was a small and very, very deliberate gesture, quite a revealing gesture, that even at the age of 71, in his own private study, the Duke of Edinburgh, husband to the richest and most famous woman in the world, was quite insecure, shy even. It was such a contrast to the persona he was well known for, brusque, unemotional, confident. I
1: found it very surprising. And what do you make of that contrast?
0: Well, I think you have to look at his early life, which was quite difficult. He had a chaotic and complicated upbringing. He was the son of the King of Greece. He was born on the kitchen table of their villa in Corfu. And at the age of one, he and his family were rescued by a Royal Navy frigate when they had to leave Greece. And Prince Philip and his parents moved to Paris. They lived in exile until he was about 10 when the parents' marriage broke up, at which point he moved to Germany to live with his sisters. So we're now in the early 1930s at Hitler's rise to power saw him move again, this time to Scotland, where he was sent to school at Gordonston. So by the time he married the Queen, he had lost virtually all his early roots. His father was dead. His mother, having suffered severely from mental illness, had withdrawn into religious order. And he'd spent much of his early life being forced to fend for himself, in order to cope with all that, he developed this prickly carapace that he was so well known for.
1: And do you think he essentially knew what he was getting into when he married the queen?
0: At the end of the war, he could have gone to Greece, but he chose England. That's where he'd made his home. And the marriage brought this young, rootless prince a home, a country, a passport, a new religion he converted from... Greek Orthodoxy to the Anglican Church. It was the first real stability in his life. He had, of course, by that time, made a successful naval career. He'd had what used to be called a good war, which was something very important in the 1940s. And he saw himself as her support, her rock. But the job of turning himself from successful naval commander into the Queen's Consort would take years of struggle, of of misunderstanding, and of just plain hard
1: work. And how did he achieve that? How did he turn himself into the, the Queen's Consort?
0: When he spoke to me in 1992, it was very much about his strong sense of duty, duty that he believed we should all have to society, that he felt very strongly... To the Queen. He found purpose in his many patronages, in his charity work. And of course, he founded the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme, which is a programme of challenges for teenagers to do with outdoor sports, volunteering. It's become incredibly important in Britain and, in fact, operates now in over 140 countries.
3: This scheme is not a a cure. Uh, It's a preventative. Once you've got a soccer hooligan, you've got a soccer hooligan, and somebody else is going to have to try and cure him of that. The the purpose of the scheme, basically, is to try and catch people while they are moderately civilised still and keep them that way.
0: No one recognised the sacrifice that he had made more than the Queen. On their golden wedding anniversary, she described the unwavering support he'd given her over 50 years. He is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments, but he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. Ultimately, I think the Duke of Edinburgh was the definition of immigrant success. He was someone who took all the values and ethics he'd learned in a previous life and made use of them in a new one.
1: And to your mind, what does his death mean for the country?
0: He's one of the last of a generation that served in the war. And I think that's a reminder of his loyalty, his support for the Queen. And his passing, of course, leaves the Queen alone, an elderly widow, and a reminder to all of us that not everything is forever.
1: Fiametta, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you, Jason.
1: Some of the world's best Arabica coffee beans are grown on the fertile land around Mount Kenya. Yet Kenyans are traditionally tea drinkers. But people there are starting to warm to the perks of a cup of joe.
4: So in Kenya, there's an expanding middle class that's finally getting a taste for all the really good quality Arabica coffee the country produces.
1: Avantika Chulcotti is our international correspondent.
4: I was in Nairobi recently And you have a whole range of very nice coffee shops that serve the same flat whites and espressos and lattes with the rippling hearts that baristas in London or New York create as well. And that's just a really good thing for a struggling industry, to have local demand for the produce.
1: But why is the industry struggling?
4: So it's really hard to make money harvesting coffee in Kenya. Most of the country's coffee harvest comes from 600,000 small farmers without a lot of money. And what happens is that between the farmer and the person who drinks the coffee, there is this Byzantine system of cooperatives, of millers, of marketing agents, and each of these individuals skims off a bit of the profit the UN Food and Agriculture Organization estimate that a farmer in Kenya gets only about 6% of the retail price of the coffee that they're actually producing.
1: So it's not an industry that that people are racing to get into, I guess.
4: Yeah, exactly. So what you're finding is that farmers are switching to more lucrative crops, stuff like avocados or macadamia nuts. A lot of the best coffee-growing Areas in the country in Kenya are relatively near to Nairobi, and developers pay good money for that land.
1: But given how well-known Kenyan coffee is around the world, why wasn't there the demand that you're seeing now?
4: So traditionally, there's just a really small community around the port of Mombasa that has a taste for coffee, and they drink this bitter, bitter brew that's called Kahawa Chungu, and it's sold as basically building libido. But aside from that tiny community, most Kenyans first get a taste of coffee via instant sachets made from very cheap, robusta beans that aren't actually grown within Kenya anyways. Lots of the middle class go abroad, they see sort of fancy coffee shops and get a taste for the stuff.
1: And so suddenly the coffee culture is not so different from what you'd find, for instance, in London and New York.
4: Well, exactly. So over the last 30 years, you've had some coffee shops popping up in cities. I spoke to a woman called Rosie Rana at Dorman's Coffee, one of the biggest roasters in the region. And she says that coffee is still an aspirational drink, that it's sort of the trendiness, it's the Western feel of it that really has people trying it out. And there's a bunch of people who are working to stoke local demand as well. And, you know, buyers take cafetiers out to the farmland. The idea is that if a grower actually tastes this coffee, it might encourage them to actually keep planting it.
1: Is the taste going to be so good that it's going to reverse this years-long trend of thinning coffee lands?
4: I think the fact that it's an aspirational drink really helps in a place where you've got a big, booming middle class. And it creates a lot more jobs when you're roasting and brewing these drinks, rather than just exporting beans. It could also be helpful for Kenya's farmers. They're sort of powerless price takers in a big global market. And if they're selling at home, that might be different.
1: Avantika, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
3: Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com